Hello, listeners. This episode originally aired in February of 2016, and we're rebroadcasting it because it's about the future of legal research and its evolution towards visualization over simple text. Enjoy the episode. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Monica Bay. And I'm Bob Ambrogi. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore new legal technology and the people behind the tech. Here on Law Technology Now. And welcome to Law Technology Now. This is Bob Ambrogi. I'm the co-host of the show along with Monica Bay. And if you're new to the show, let me just tell you, uh, this is a, a relaunch of a podcast that Monica Bay did on her own for many years, and then uh, the podcast went into a brief period of hibernation where we've relaunched the show recently with Monica and I sharing hosting duties. We'll alternate month to month uh, talking about legal technology issues, and uh, this is my first show going solo. Monica and I recorded the first episode of our relaunch show, and now I'm, I'm beginning this. Uh, this is my first episode alone. And uh, I guess what, what I'm hoping to do with this show is to have conversations with some of the people who I think are interesting to talk to in this industry, and there are a lot of them out there. For my first show, I wanted to uh, have on somebody who I've had a lot of conversations with over the years and I always find very interesting to talk to, and that's Ed Walters, the CEO of Fastcase. So, uh, Ed Walters, welcome to Law Technology Now. Thank you, Bob. Fun to be here. So, Ed, uh, perhaps a little-known fact about you that (laughs) I think a lot of the people listening to this program probably have heard of you, probably uh, might some of them are going to know you, but I'm I'm willing to bet that a lot of them don't know that you started your career as a speechwriter for George H.W. Bush. Yeah, that's true. My my first job out of uh, college, which I really stumbled into. I, I cold called the White House. I told them I was a Democrat. They said, you know, look, kid, you're <laughs> coming in here as an intern. You're going to be making copies. You know, we don't care if you're a communist. It's not like <laughs> we're going to ask you to set foreign policy. But uh, I was able to parlay that summer internship into a full-time job uh, when I graduated and worked in the Office of Presidential Speech Writing. It was a, it was a joy. It was so much fun. I got into a lot of fights Man, just bounded up the steps every single morning. What a blast. I bet it was. So, so here's my question. Did, is there anything that you learned in that job that's proven useful to you in running a legal research company? Wow, that's a great question. I think maybe the most important thing I learned there was how to uh, disagree without being disagreeable. <laughs> being a Democrat, I guess you'd have to, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um and I, I guess I really learned there that you know people who disagree with you can often be very well intentioned and very smart and still disagree, and that that has come uh, in handy throughout my life. But certainly running a business where you know people have strong opinions and they disagree about very important things, 
uh, knowing that you can still disagree with someone and respect them and respect their opinion, that's a lesson I've carried for my whole life. I've talked to you a number of times over the years, but uh, a conversation I had with you in 2010 always stood out to me. And one of the things you you said during that conversation was that, that you believe that legal publishing should be based not on that competition in legal publishing should be based not on who owns the data, meaning the cases and statutes and whatever, but on who provides the best features, services, and prices. And uh, I wonder if that's something you still believe, and if so, could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, you know, at, this is something that we have seen over and over again. We've uh, baked this into our DNA at FastCase, the idea that the law itself is or should be a commodity. You know, if you, if you think about when we started FastCase in 1999, legal publishing and legal research were in kind of an AOL world where you paid for access, right? Um, the, the kind of incumbent traditional publishers, Westlaw, LexisNexis, um, were charging for access to the law because that was the only way you can get it. And when we started FastCase, we said, look, in the internet age, there's going to be lots of ways of getting the underlying stuff, getting the law itself. And so if you're really going to be successful, you have to provide something more than just access to the law. The winners in this market are going to be the ones who provide the best software. And, um, you know, today this, this idea is uh, referred to as, you know, software is eating the world in the uh, parlance of Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz. And, uh, you see this across industries, right? It's, it's not really the underlying content that wins the day. It's the, it's the most compelling software and experience that does. And, uh, you know, this was sort of the undoing of AOL. AOL was kind of a mere access service. And what became important was much more than that. And so that's, that's what we've tried to do at FastCase. We've tried to say both that you know, the underlying law itself should be available to everybody. It should be a commodity. It should be universally accessible. It should be very useful. And it should be relatively inexpensive like any commodity. And then what you add on top of that uh, is what you can really charge for. That's where legal publishers should add value. And, you know, we, we've sort of played this out in a couple of ways. Uh, one of those ways is to say that, you know, the underlying law can and should be free. We were, uh, you know, we were the first ones to launch a free um, mobile app for this that made it available for free. We pioneered the public library of law. Um, we, we actually worked with Google before there was a Google Scholar to put a bunch of the law uh, available inside the Google search engine. And you know, every time we do this, people say, oh my gosh, that's crazy. You're going to undermine your you know, paid legal research service. Um, and every time we see over and over again, it doesn't. In fact, you know, we're bringing more people into legal research by making more of the law available for free. And, you know, I think this is sort of played out. If you, uh, if you look at the kind of innovation cycle for law, uh, Westlaw Next and Lexis Advance and new versions of Bloomberg Law have all followed our work to pioneer the law. I mean, obviously, we didn't do this all ourselves, but I think the world is sort of moving in this direction where you have to add compelling software on top of the data itself. You know, the last thing I'll say about this is that you can sort of hear echoes of this even in the biggest publishing companies. I think everyone sort of recognizes this is true. Uh, Thomson Reuters Legal Westlaw 
has said for a couple of years now, we're no longer a content publishing company, we're a software solutions company. And so I think that legal publishing market is, as the underlying law becomes more democratized, as more people have access to it, the real competition comes in who can build the best software on top of it, who can make that experience the most useful. And you know, so this is a competition we've been geared up to win for years. So how do you, do you view yourself as a legal research company or as a legal technology company, or does it really matter? I think of us as a legal publishing company. And um, you know, the publishing business in 2016 is all about software. So the, the underlying law itself is provided by courts and legislatures and regulators and agencies. Um, and so we aggregate it and standardize it and you know, really build software on top of it that makes it universally usable and understandable and beautiful. Ed, uh, Fastcase over the years has sometimes been portrayed in the media as a sort of David going up against the two Goliaths of legal research, Westlaw and LexisNexis. Uh, you just alluded to the fact that in some ways they've followed your lead, uh, whether intentionally or not, uh, who knows, uh, in some respects. Um, but, you know, you've recently acquired Lois Law, they, one of the original sort of lower cost, mid-market, I guess, legal research services. I'm wondering... At this point, uh, you've been doing this now, as you said, for a long time. If, you, if you're David against Goliath, how's the battle going? Where do you, where do you stand right now? Well, you know, I, I don't like the David and Goliath metaphor necessarily because I think David and Goliath is kind of zero sum. You know, you can't have David and Goliath coexist. One of them has to win. And I think that there is a place for a company like Fastcase uh, without having to take anybody down with a rock. You know, I, I've been thinking recently about Fastcase more like Starbucks. Um, when Starbucks came around, there were plenty of coffee shops in the world. And, um, you know, the coffee was really uneven. Um, there was a lot of really bad coffee out there. And one thing that Starbucks did was it said, look, uh, we can elevate the level of coffee. We can have like a, a very high standard of coffee and have it be ubiquitous and create kind of a middle market for coffee. Um, and not a middle market that's bad, actually a middle market that's going to, you know, rival some of the best coffee shops there are. And the, you know, coffee won't necessarily all be about coffee. It'll be about uh, ambiance and music and places to be and to drink coffee comfortably and um, lifestyle in some sense. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there is room to do that in legal publishing as well, to raise the floor um, to say that, you know, everyone should have good access to law with, um, you know, search that uses really great science to make legal research smart. Uh, so it shouldn't be like a kind of bare bones thing through your bar association or through your, you know, mobile app or through your iPad. You can get very good legal research everywhere. And uh, so, you know, and I don't think that knocks out necessarily uh, Thomson Reuters Legal or Reed Elsevier and LexisNexis. I think there's there's always going to be room for them, maybe in the secondary market or in workflow or things like that. But you know, I, I do think that there is the in the same way that Starbucks made coffee a lot more accessible to people and created a lot more coffee drinkers and made the experience more enjoyable and really kind of raised the floor for coffee in America. I, I think there's room for a company like Fastcase to raise the floor for everybody to make legal research something that isn't isn't intimidating that 
partners can do and young associates can do and law students can do uh, in a compelling, powerful way and without being afraid. And so, uh, you know, I think that um, David and Goliath is not really a, a story that we tell a lot, but I think there is a way to, you know, raise the, raise the floor a little bit of what people can do with legal research software. Yeah. And, and what does your acquisition of Lois Law, which happened last September, uh, mean to that? This was, a, as, as, as I understood, it was an assets-only purchase that included the Lois Law brand and the domain name and the subscribers, basically, uh, to Lois Law. Uh, so what, what does that mean for your, your position in the market? Well, I'd like to think that it's, a, it's at some level a validation of how well our software is working. And, you know, I, I think of the approach we've taken as a company. So we've always viewed this as a long haul investment. We're not like a flameout.com. We're not raising a ton of money and spending a ton of money and going out of business. And uh, our conjecture was that if you build a company for the long term, you build a profitable solid growing company um, that people love over time uh, everything will sort of fall in your direction and you know when it came time for Walters Kluwer to close down Lois Law they said you know let's survey the market let's figure out where our customers are going to have the best home and you know when they when they talked to us when they saw the fast case software and they saw you know, how much our customers love Fastcase. They said, this is going to be a happy home. We know that we're being a good steward for these subscribers uh, when we bring them over to Fastcase. And, you know, they had to say, like, you know, whoever it is is going to be a steward for these Lois Law libraries, the, the Aspen and CCH treatises that Lois Law subscribers get. And so we have to find someone who we can trust to be a steward for these uh, going forward. And so, you know, I, I, I take a lot of uh, pride and validation in the, in the fact that a you know, global publishing company like Walters Kluwer um, saw that in Fastcase. And, you know, we take it very seriously. We're working very hard to make their, their customers happy. What's been the response to the subscribers? They love it. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, what are you going to tell me? <laughs> well, I, you know, I would tell you if there, was a, if there was a major kind of cultural shock. You know, you could imagine people who have used Lois Law since the 80s, you know, might say, who moved my cheese? Whenever you switch software, it's a disruptive thing. I mean, if you think about when you switch from, you know, Windows 7 to Windows 10 or Windows XP to Windows 7, uh, everyone has a hard time with it and lawyers especially. And so we really, we added staff here. We were, you know, building out to deal with a lot of inbound customer service and people who need a lot of training. Uh, and it hasn't gone that way at all. <laughs> you know, a lot of Lois Law subscribers came in and breathed kind of a sigh of relief. They said, wow, this, this actually works great. It works better than I was, you know, worried it might. Good. So Good. It's, uh, it's worked out really well. Ed, uh, here in my state of Massachusetts, the state bar recently switched to offering Fast Cases a member benefit instead of Casemaker. There, there has been this long time, uh, I, I, I think you have to call it a competition, between Fastcase and Casemaker uh, against each other uh, for these bar association affinity deals. I, I'm wondering when you go to talk to bars or, or, or when, when Phil, uh, your, your co-founder, Phil Rosenthal, goes out to talk to bars, what do you see as the most important distinguishing factor between Fastcase and Casemaker? Well, you know, it's funny. I we don't really do a whole lot of 
uh, comparative stuff anymore. I mean, I think that used to be the case, but well, it's got to be the question though. They got to be asking that. Hey, it's okay. a fine service. I mean, they, you know, they they were really pioneers of the bar association market. I think today, when when you look at both software systems, just as software, uh, we really are kind of competing with Westlaw Next and Lexus Advance, um, and uh, I think quite favorably. And so, you know, we go in and we say, look, you know, uh, Fastcase has baked in integration with the most popular smartphone app for lawyers. Even if you're a case maker state, you know, most of the lawyers in your state are probably using Fastcase on the iPhone or Android or Windows phone or iPad. Um, why, why not let them integrate? You know, and uh, we've, we've been for years uh, kind of moving beyond the mere access model to things like data visualization with the interactive timeline or big data analytics with bad lawbot. And, you know, these are all things that are designed to, you know, again, not just sort of give people access to the libraries, but to find things that you would miss or to help you understand the law at a deeper, more visual level. And I don't think there's really anything like it anymore. When we, when we compare it, you know, you, you can't say, like, what's the interactive timeline like on Westlaw? I think the only other company that does something like it is Ravel Law. And so, you know, I, uh, when, you, when you talk about the the you know best app for iPhone I mean there's there's not like a competing app that does that so you know we're we're not really saying anymore like if you compare head to head fastcase versus brand X um, you know here's the boxes you check I think what we're saying is that you know uh, over the last five years we've added a hundred thousand new subscribers a year uh, in part because there's really nothing like fastcase so you know it's a I think that's that's really changed we haven't we haven't taken a comparative head-to-head approach in a number of years. Speaking of that app, I, and I've I've written favorably about your app, and I know that for the last three years of the ABA's Legal Technology Survey report, your app has been rated by lawyers as the most popular uh, legal app in that survey. Uh, but still, it's what five, six years old at this point. Uh, I'm wondering, do you have a new app in the works, and when are we going to see that? Yeah. So version three came out. Um, uh, I guess last year in 2015, uh, and it was really a response to iOS 8. It wasn't much of a change for the app, um, but we're cooking a new one right now. Actually, I've got the mock-up sitting here at my desk, and um, I'm pretty excited about it. For uh, iPhone and iPad? Yeah, that's right, and uh, Android and for Windows Phone. By the way, we launched the Windows Phone app. We didn't make a whole lot of fanfare about it, but you know, if you have Windows Phone, uh, there's a there's an app for that. So the new one actually is going to be a little bit different. Right now, uh, Fastcase for iPhone or iPad or Android is really just cases and statutes. And in the future, um, if you have a full subscription to Fastcase on your desktop with a lot more libraries and things like that, then you'll have access to those on your iPhone as well. So if you don't have a subscription, you continue to get cases and statutes for free. Uh, but if, for example, you have a subscription through the Mass Bar, uh, then you'll have access to all of the other libraries that you have available as a member um, on your mobile app as well. And I think that'll be a really nice addition for Fastcase subscribers. On the topic of things uh, that might be coming down the pike, we, you were just talking about visualization, and I interviewed you on that uh, also a couple of years ago. I think it was... Uh, two years ago, actually, for an ABA journal piece I did about the use of visualization tools in legal research. And uh, from, from what I could find in researching that article, you were 
actually the first, if not one of the first, but I think the first U.S. legal research company to incorporate any kind of a visualization tool into your research platform, the Interactive Timeline, 2008, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what's what do you think visual tools bring to legal research and, and what new tools might you be developing? Well, I think that for a legal researcher, text-based search results kind of lie. When you, when you look at text-based search results on Google or on you know, your traditional legal research services, they kind of all look the same, uh, but they're not the same. You know, There's some real winners in that group, and then there's some dead losers, stuff that you don't want to read. Um, but in the old way of doing research, you can't tell them apart. So in a list of text-based search results, the only thing you can do is sort of skim them all and hope that you don't miss something. You know, and if you have 150, 200, 1,000 search results, that's tedious, you know, terrible, wasteful work. Uh, so the ability to visualize search results, to create a map, allows you to see in an instant, visually, what's really important and what's not. And you know, as a practical matter, the most important thing about that is it tells you when to stop reading. You know, in text-based search results, there's nothing that tells you that you're done. You can keep reading until you get to the bottom, and you know that can take days. Or you can stop and worry the whole time that there's something that you missed. With a map of search results, like the interactive timeline, you can see right away, okay, here are the six germane cases that I care about, um, and I've read them, and now I'm done. I can stop doing research. On, on FastCase, we've kind of ingeniously hidden the interactive timeline away so that no one will ever find our coolest features. <laughs> We're really <laughs> smart about that. Um, but on the new version of FastCase, FastCase 7, um, it's integrated right into the search results. And um, uh, we're really excited about that. I think it's going to be a major step forward in uh, legal research. And a couple of years ago, you licensed uh, top form, uh, bankruptcy case preparation uh, feature. Tell me a little bit more about what that is and, and, and what you see as significant about that uh, as, as, as a product. Yeah, so uh, Topform is kind of like TurboTax for bankruptcy lawyers. Uh, a bankruptcy lawyer will sit down with their client and they'll walk through an interview. And at the end of the interview, Topform produces a fileable PDF that you can you know, electronically file a bankruptcy petition into any bankruptcy court in the country. And they'll be customized for the rules uh, and local forms for that bankruptcy court. We bought this from LexisNexis at the end of 2013. And um, you know, this is an example of baking the, the law into software. So in the past, bankruptcy lawyers might need to know all of the different exemptions for all the districts that they're filing in. And um, you know, now you can sort of bake this into software, much like TurboTax. Um, I, I'm really convinced that this kind of document automation is going to be a major frontier for the practice of law. There's, a, there's so much that, that you can do uh, to use software to both uh, help more people and to create more jobs for lawyers. I think it's a... Uh, it's an amazing frontier. So, you know, we've, we've sort of seen it here with Topform, um, allowing lawyers to file more bankruptcy petitions faster, um, makes them more effective as lawyers, makes them better business people. If, um, if it takes you two days to prepare a bankruptcy um, petition, 
you're not going to make any money on it. There's not going to be enough bankruptcy lawyers to help people. You, you know, by definition, you don't make a lot of money for each petition because your clients are, by definition, bankrupt. They're reorganizing their debts. Um, but if you can do two a day, then you can very effectively make money as a lawyer. You can pay your overhead. You can run a very effective business. And you know, I, I think that if you, if you look at the market generally with 40,000 law school graduates for 20,000 uh, law firm jobs, in the, in the U.S. in 2014 and 2015, there is a vast kind of oversupply of lawyers. Um, but at the same token, there is a huge unmet uh, legal need among middle class people especially for legal services. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking here of the ABA Access Justice Survey from last year that said that uh, some large number of people with legal problems weren't going to lawyers. And the reason wasn't because they thought they couldn't afford legal services. It was because they didn't even know that the problem they had was a legal problem. If they're being evicted from their house and can't get their belongings, they don't really think of that as a legal problem. They think of it as a social problem or a life problem. Um, but I think that this latent market for legal services presents huge opportunities for document automation. These are often repetitive problems. They come up over and over again. They're very form-based. Um, and so I think that they're very amenable to document automation solutions. Can I tell you something I'm really inspired by? Sure. Um, I, I think of the Iron Tech Lawyer Program at Georgetown Law. Um, Tanina Rostain and before uh, that, uh, Roger Skalbach as well, uh, had law students draft apps for justice. And the idea was these aren't coders, these are law students without a background in engineering or computer science, and they would build with Neotologic um, or A to J author small apps that would answer recurring questions and help people with legal problems. Uh, and the results were amazing. You know, if uh, every year uh, there's another crop of Iron Tech Lawyer apps that come out of Georgetown written by students. Uh, if you look at the Bestlaw app, um, uh, a student basically built a layer on top of Westlaw that improved some of the uh, features in Westlaw Next. Uh, we're coming to a time where the ability to code and the ability to create software applications is being democratized. I'm super excited about what that means for access to justice. There's a lot uh, people will be able to help with, you know, I think, intelligent, legal-informed coding. Uh, and I think top form, once it works for bankruptcy, we plan to extend it to other areas as well. You could imagine it for immigration or no-fault divorce. There's a lot of very form-based parts of the practice of law where we could help a lot of people with software. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly uh, exciting area as well. I, as we're speaking, the uh, Legal Services Corporation's Technology Initiative Grants Conference is going on uh, down in, I think they're down in Texas this year. Uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of innovation coming out of the legal services community uh, in terms of using technology to bridge the uh, access to justice gap and to provide legal services more efficiently and, and more effectively to people who can't afford them and to to make do to make up for shortcomings in funding and staff. Uh, you know, you mentioned A to J author. That's something that's that's been uh, really important uh, in in developing. Uh, guided uh, 
questionnaires for uh, self-help uh, litigants and self-help uh, people with self-help problems to uh, prepare legal forms and, and find uh, find their way to uh, to legal help. So uh, it's a really exciting area. This is a major problem, right? Uh, people have legal problems, but they don't know how to get a lawyer or they feel like they can't afford a lawyer. And software really can be a solution to some of these problems, not all of the problems, but some of the form filling problems, some of the recurring problems that require the same thing over and over again. There really is a hope that you know people will get more and better help. And again, not in a zero sum way. This doesn't have to take lawyers' jobs. It doesn't have to you know, replace associates with robots. Um, it can serve a market that doesn't get served well today at all. Um, right. And that's good for everybody. Right. Lawyers aren't doing that work uh, and nobody's serving that market, uh, especially in the, in the, the, the low bono uh, area, you know, the people who are uh, sort of above the poverty line, but, but just can't afford the cost of legal services. Probably a lot of lawyer, lawyers are in that category. That's such an interesting uh, insight, Bob. You know, if you're if you're below the poverty line, you can qualify for legal aid, but nobody ever thinks about people who are just above the poverty line. You know, if you are in you know the lower middle class or the middle class, access to legal services is really expensive. And if you think about all the other needs people have, saving for retirement or putting a kid through school or making a car note or paying off loans, um, you know. If you have to choose between doing one of those things and paying for legal services, you're going to go without the legal services. Right. And so if there's a way to provide some of those legal services to people you know, that, that doesn't um, cut out legal jobs, I think that really is the opportunity for a win for everyone. Yeah, I, I wish we could talk all day, and unfortunately, we're, we're already running out of time. I, I did, just, just before we wrap up, I, I, I want to know what you're thinking going forward for Fastcase? What's, what's the plan for the next five years? How will Fastcase be different in 2020 from what it is today? Well, you know me, Bob. I'm, I'm an optimistic person by nature. But I have, <laughs> you are. I've literally never been more uh, excited and optimistic about Fastcase than I am in January of 2016. 16 years I've been doing this. I've never been as excited about it as I am right now. Um, which, if you're in the legal research business, that's a very dangerous thing for everybody else. <laughs> um, if I'm if I'm looking forward, um, you know, now we're we're at a place where um, we have 28 state bar associations who work with us. Most of the big bar associations have a fast case subscription. 800,000 subscribers. Uh, we have a big lead in mobile. Uh, and a platform going forward in Fastcase 7 that's going to be the best legal research system in the world. Uh, I, you know, I'm prone to overstatement, but I really believe that. <laughs> I don't think that there's going to be a better legal research system in the world than Fastcase 7 is. Um, with that platform, you know, we, we can look to expand uh, around the world. So I think global is a real frontier for us. In the same way that in 1999, only the biggest law firms had access to the law. Uh, in the world, only the biggest countries do. And there's no reason to think that you know, 15 years from now, 10 years from now, there won't be one global law library with the access to all of the world's law, translatable from any country's language to any country's language. And if you look at kind of the history of legal publishing, if you do that top down, if you start with the biggest countries, you never get to the smallest countries. You have to have a cost structure that allows you to do it in an inexpensive way. 
And FastCase's algorithmic approach to legal research, which doesn't involve tens of thousands of human editors, but involves intelligent software um, and you know good access to the law, is built exactly for that. So I think if you're if you're looking forward, there has to be a global library of law, and I think we're in a really good place to be that library. Um, our our position in mobile right now is really just in the U.S. Uh, but there's no reason to think we couldn't do that in the rest of the world either. For a lot of the world, their computer is in their pocket. And so I think mobile really provides a platform to be the legal research application for the world. And so I would say look to see us extend um, our mobile platform everywhere. And then finally, uh, we really want to make top form a success. We really want document automation to be an important part of the world going forward. And so, you know, we'll look to extend that into other areas of law. The last frontier for us is data analytics. So one of the things we're really interested in right now is how you use math and science to solve these sorts of problems. In the same way we've done for legal research using citation analysis and data visualization, I think there's a lot of uh, questions in law that are unknown but not unknowable. And the rise of data analytics really gives us the opportunity to understand better. As one example, uh, we've begun a kind of massive download of PACER information. And there are insights in PACER that will allow law firms to do all kinds of stuff from pricing um, fee agreements and um, you know alternative uh, legal fee arrangements to predicting when their clients are going to have problems before they do to treat things as a matter of uh, you know kind of risk mitigation instead of litigation after the fact. And I think all of these solutions lie in data analytics. Uh, I'm actually working on a book right now um, about data analytics in law, uh, probably scheduled to come out in 2017, 2018. Uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of insights in data analysis, uh, like what we did with Bad Lawbot, where we said, you know, you can derive from the citations and figure out which cases have been overturned algorithmically. There's all kinds of insights in the law just like that. Super excited about that. So those are some frontiers for us going forward. Well, Ed Walters, thanks for being my uh, inaugural guest on my first uh, solo edition of Law Technology Now. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. And thanks to all our listeners for listening to Law Technology Now. We hope you'll hope you enjoy the show and hope you'll listen next time. This is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.